1: Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew.
0: I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 10 and 11 of Emily of New Moon by L.M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily was gifted the letter bills and wrote to her father about everything that had happened so far at New Moon. Tonight's story will be one of friendships betrayed, punishments escaped,
1: and new friendships made. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep.
0: If you haven't already, Find a nice place to get cosy, be it in a chair, in your bed, or elsewhere. And rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed
1: sitting up, laying down, eyes open, or eyes closed. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So while you're on your path to sleep tonight, All you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And now, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 10. Growing Pains There was a great deal of suppressed excitement in school
0: during the last week in June, the cause thereof being Rhoda Stewart's birthday party, which was to take place in early July. The amount of heart-burning was incredible. Who was to be invited? That was the great question. There were some who knew they wouldn't, and some who knew they would, but there were more who were in truly horrible suspense. Everybody paid court to Emily because she was Rhoda's dearest friend and might conceivably have some voice in the selection of guests. Jeanie Strang even went as far as to bluntly offer Emily a beautiful white box With a gorgeous picture of Queen Victoria on the cover to keep her pencils in if she would procure her an invite. Emily refused the bribe and said grandly that she could not interfere in such delicate matters. Emily really did put on some airs about it. She was sure of her invite. Rhoda had told her all about the party weeks before and had talked it all over with her it was to be a very grand affair a birthday cake covered with pink icing and adorned with 10 tall pink candles ice cream and oranges and written invitations on pink gilt-edged note paper sent through the post office this last being an added touch of exclusiveness Emily dreamed about that party day and night and had her present all ready for Rhoda, a pretty hair ribbon which Aunt Laura had bought from Shrewsbury. On the first Sunday in July, Emily found herself sitting beside Jeanie Strang in Sunday school for the open exercises. Generally, she and Rhoda sat together. But now Rhoda was sitting three seats ahead with a strange little girl, a very gay and gorgeous little girl, dressed in blue silk, with a large flower-wreathed leghorn hat on her elaborately curled hair, white lacework stockings on her pudgy legs, and a bang that came clean down to her eyes. Not all her fine feathers could make a really fine bird of her, however. She was not in the least pretty, and her expression was cross and contemptuous. Who is the girl sitting with Rhoda? whispered Emily. Oh, she's Muriel Porter, answered Jeanie.She's She's a townie, you know. She's come out to spend her vacation with her aunt. Jane Beattie. I hate her. If I was her, I'd never dream of wearing blue with a skin as dark as hers. But the porters are rich, and Muriel thinks she's a wonder. They say Rhoda and her have been awful thick since she came out. Rhoda's always chasing after anybody she thinks is up in the world. Emily stiffened up. She was not going to listen to disparaging remarks about her friends. Jeanie felt the stiffening and changed her note. Anyway, I'm glad I'm not invited to Rhoda's old party. I wouldn't want to go when Muriel Porter will be there, putting on her airs. How do you know you are not invited? wondered Emily. Why? The invitations went
1: out yesterday, didn't you get yours? No. Did you get your mail? Yes, cousin Jimmy got it. Well, maybe Mrs.
0: Beecher forgot to give it to him, likely you'll get it tomorrow. Emily agreed that it was likely but a queer, cold sensation of dismay had invaded her being, which was not removed by the fact that after Sunday school, Rhoda strutted away with Muriel Porter without a glance at anyone else. On Monday, Emily herself went to the post office, but there was no pink envelope for her. She cried herself to sleep that night but did not quite give up hope until Tuesday had passed. Then she faced the terrible truth that she, she, Emily Bird Star of New Moon, had not been invited to Rhoda's party. The thing was incredible. There must be a mistake somewhere. Had Cousin Jimmy lost the invitation on the road home? Had Rhoda's grown-up sister, who wrote the invitations, overlooked her name? Had Emily's unhappy doubts were forever resolved in bitter certainty by Jeannie, who joined her as she left the post office? There was a malicious light in Jeannie's beady eyes. Jeannie liked Emily quite well by now in spite of their passage at arms on the day of their first meeting, but she liked to see her pride humbled for all that. So you're not invited to Rhoda's party after all? No, admitted Emily. It was a very bitter moment for her. The Murray Pride was sorely wrung, and beneath the Murray Pride... Something else had been grievously wounded, but was not yet quite dead. Well, I call it dirt mean, said Jeannie, quite honestly sympathetic in spite of her secret satisfaction. After all the fuss she's made over you two, but that's Rhoda Stewart all over. Deceitful is no name for her. I don't think she's deceitful, said Emily, loyal to the last ditch. I believe there's some mistake about my not being invited. Jeanie stared. Then you don't know the reason. Why, Beth Beattie told me the whole story. Muriel Porter hates you, and she just up and told Rhoda that she would not go to her party if you were invited. And Rhoda was so crazy to have a town girl there that she promised she wouldn't invite you. Muriel Porter doesn't know me, gasped Emily. How can she hate me? Jeanie grinned impishly. I can tell you. She's dead stuck on Fred Stewart. And Fred knows it. And he teased her by praising you up to her told her you were the sweetest girl in Blairwater and he meant to have you for his girl when you were a little older. And Muriel was so mad and jealous, she made Rhoda leave you out. I wouldn't care if I was you. A Murray of New Moon is always above such trash. As for Rhoda not being deceitful, I can tell you she is. Why? She told you that she didn't know that snake was in the box when it was her thought of doing it in the first place. Emily was too crushed to reply. She was glad that Jeannie had to switch off down her own lane and leave her alone. She hurried home, afraid that she could not keep the tears back until she got there. Disappointment about the party. Humiliation over the insult, all were swallowed up in the anguish of a faith betrayed and a trust outraged. Her love of Rhoda was quite dead now, and Emily smarted to the core of her soul with the pain of the blow that had killed it. It was a child's tragedy, and all the more bitter for that, since there was no one to understand. Aunt Elizabeth told her that birthday parties were all nonsense and that the Stuarts were not a family that the Murrays had ever associated with. And even Aunt Laura, though she petted and comforted, did not realise how deep and grievous the hurt had been. So deep and grievous that Emily could not even write about it to her father and had no outlet for the violence of emotion that racked her being. The next Sunday, Rhoda was alone in Sunday school, Muriel Porter having been suddenly summoned back to town by her father's illness, and Rhoda looked sweetly towards Emily, but Emily sailed past her with a head held very high and a scorn on every liniment. She would never have anything to do with Rhoda Stewart again. She couldn't. She despised Rhoda more than ever for trying to get back with her, now that the town girl for whom she had sacrificed her was gone. It was not for Rhoda, she mourned. It was for the friendship that had been so dear to her. Rhoda had been dear and sweet on the surface at least, and Emily had found intense happiness in their companionship. Now it was gone, and she could never, never love or trust anybody again. There lay the sting. It poisoned everything. Emily was of a nature which, even as a child, did not readily recover from or forget such a blow. She moped about New Moon, lost her appetite and grew thin. She hated to go to Sunday school because she thought that the other girls exulted in her humiliation and her estrangement from Rhoda. Some slight feeling of the kind there was, perhaps, but Emily morbidly exaggerated it. If two girls whispered or giggled together, she thought that she was being discussed and laughed at. If one of them walked home with her, she thought it was out of condescending pity because she was friendless. For a month, Emily was the most unhappy little being in Blairwater. I think I must have been put under a curse at birth she reflected disconsolately. Aunt Elizabeth had a more prosaic idea to account for Emily's ligure and lack of appetite. She had come to the conclusion that Emily's heavy masses of hair took from her strength and that she would be much stronger and better if she were to cut it off. With Aunt Elizabeth, To decide was to act. One morning she coolly informed Emily that her hair was to be shingled. Emily could not believe her ears. You don't mean that you're going to cut off my hair, Aunt Elizabeth? she exclaimed. Yes, I mean exactly that, said Aunt Elizabeth firmly. You have entirely too much hair especially for hot weather. I feel sure that is why you have been so miserable lately. Now, I don't want any crying. But Emily could not keep the tears back. Don't cut it all off, she pleaded. Just cut a good big bang. Lots of the girls have their hair banged clean from the crown of their heads. That should take half my hair off and the rest won't take too much strength. There will be no bangs here, said Aunt Elizabeth. I've told you so often. I'm going to shingle your hair close all over your head for the hot weather. You'll be thankful to me some day for it. Emily felt anything but thankful just then. It's my one beauty, she sobbed. It and my lashes. I suppose you want to cut off my lashes too. Aunt Elizabeth did distrust those long, up-curled fringes of Emily's, which were an inheritance from the girlish stepmother and too unmurray like to be approved. But she had no design against them. The hair must go, however, and she curtly bade Emily wait there, without any fuss, until she got the scissors. Emily waited, quite hopelessly. She must lose her lovely hair, the hair her father had been so proud of. It might grow again in time, if Aunt Elizabeth let it, but that would take years, and meanwhile, What a fright she would be. Aunt Laura and cousin Jimmy were out. She had no one to back her up. This horrible thing must happen. Aunt Elizabeth returned with the scissors. They clicked suggestively as she opened them. That click, as if by magic, seemed to loosen something. Some strange, formidable power in Emily's soul. She turned deliberately around and faced her aunt. She felt her brows drawing together in an unaccustomed way. She felt an uprush as from unknown depths of some irresistible surge of energy. "'Aunt Elizabeth,' she said, looking straight at the lady with scissors, "'My hair is not going to be cut off.' Let me hear no more of this. An amazing thing happened to Aunt Elizabeth. She turned pale. She laid the scissors down. She looked aghast for one moment at the transformed or possessed child before her. And then, for the first time in her life, Elizabeth Murray turned
1: tail and fled. Literally fled to the kitchen. What is the matter, Elizabeth? cried Laura, coming in from the cookhouse. I saw
0: father looking from her face, gasped Elizabeth, trembling, and she said, let me hear no more of this, just as he always said it, his very words. Emily overheard her and ran to the sideboard mirror. She had had, while she was speaking, an uncanny feeling of wearing somebody else's face instead of her own. It was vanishing now, but Emily caught a glimpse of it as it left. The Murray look, she supposed. No wonder it had frightened Aunt Elizabeth. It frightened herself. She was glad that it had gone. She shivered. She fled to her garret retreat and cried. But somehow she knew that her hair would not be cut. Nor was it. Aunt Elizabeth never referred to the matter again. But several days passed before she meddled much with Emily. It was a rather curious fact that from that day Emily ceased to grieve over her lost friend. The matter had suddenly become of small importance. It was as if it had happened so long ago that nothing, save the mere emotionless memory of it, remained. Emily speedily regained appetite and animation, resumed her letters to her father, and found that life tasted good again. Marred only by a mysterious prescience that Aunt Elizabeth had it in for her in regards to her defeat in the matter of her hair, and would get even sooner or later. Aunt Elizabeth got even within the next week. Emily was to go on an errand to the shop. It was a broiling day, and she had been allowed to go barefoot at home but now she must put on boots and stockings. Emily rebelled. It was too hot. It was too dusty. She couldn't walk that long, half a mile in buttoned boots. Aunt Elizabeth was inexonorable. No Murray must be seen barefooted away from home. And on they went. But the minute Emily was outside the new moon gate, She deliberately sat down, took them off, stowed them in a hole in the dike, and pranced away barefooted. She did her errand and returned with an untroubled conscience. How beautiful the world was, how softly blue was the great round blair water. How glorious that miracle of buttercups in the wet field below Lofty John's bush! At sight of it, Emily stood stock still and composed a verse of poetry. Buttercup, flower of the yellow dye, I see thy cheerful face, Greeting and nodding everywhere, careless of time and place. In boggy field or public road, or cultured gardens pale, you sport your petals satin soft and down within the veil. So far so good, but Emily wanted another verse to round the poem off properly and the divine afflatus seemed gone. She walked dreamily home. And by the time she reached New Moon, she had got her verse and was reciting it to herself with an agreeable sense of completion. You cast your loveliness around, wherever you chance to be, and you shall always, Buttercup, be a flower dear to me. Emily felt very proud. This was her third poem and undoubtedly her best. Nobody could say it was very blank. She must hurry up to the garret and write it on a letter bill. But Aunt Elizabeth was confronting her on the steps. Emily, where are your boots and stockings? Emily came back from Cloudland with a disagreeable jolt. She had forgotten all about boots and
1: stockings. In the hole by the gate, she said flatly. You went to the store barefooted? Yes, after I had told you not to.
0: This seemed to Emily a superfluous question, and she did not
1: answer it. But Aunt Elizabeth's turn had come. Chapter 11 Isla Emily was locked in the spare room and told that she must stay there
0: until bedtime. She had pleaded against such a punishment in vain. She had tried to give the Murray look, but it seemed that, in her case at any rate, it did not come at will. Oh, don't shut me up alone there, Aunt Elizabeth, she implored. I know I was naughty, but don't put me in the spare room. Aunt Elizabeth was inexorable. She knew that it was a cruel thing to shut an oversensitive child like Emily in that gloomy room. But she thought she was doing her duty. She did not realise, and would not have for a moment believed, that she was really wreaking her own smothered resentment with Emily for her defeat and fright on the day of the threatened hair cutting. Aunt Elizabeth believed she had been stampeded on that occasion by a chance family resemblance coming out under stress, and she was ashamed of it. The Murray pride had smarted under that humbling and the smart ceased to annoy her only when she turned the key of the spare room on the white-faced culprit. Emily, looking very small and lost and lonely, her eyes full of such fear as should have no place in a child's eyes, shrank close against the door of the spare room. It was better that way, She could not imagine things behind her then, and the room was so big and dim that a dreadful number of things could be imagined in it. Its bigness and dimness filled her with a terror against which she could not strive. Ever since she could remember, she had had a horror of being shut up alone in semi-darkness. She was not frightened of twilight out of doors, but this shadowy, walled gloom made of the spare room a place of dread. The window was hung with heavy, dark green material, reinforced by a drawn slat blind. The big canopied bed, jutting out from the wall into the middle of the floor, was high and rigid and curtained also with dark draperies. Anything might jump at her out of such a bed. What if some great black hand should suddenly reach out of it, reach right across the floor, and pluck at her? The walls, like those of the parlour, were adorned with pictures of departed relatives. There was such a large connection of dead Murrays. The glasses of their frames gave out weird reflections of the spectral threads of light struggling through the slat blinds. Worst of all, right across the room from her, high up on the top of the black wardrobe, was a huge, stuffed white Arctic owl staring at her with uncanny eyes. Emily shrieked aloud when she saw it, and then cowered down in the corner, aghast at the sound she had made in the great, silent, echoing room. She wished that something would jump out of the bed and put an end to it. I wonder what Aunt Elizabeth would feel like if she found me here dead, she thought, Vindictively. In spite of her fright, she began to dramatize it and felt Aunt Elizabeth's remorse so keenly that she decided only to be unconscious and come back to life when everybody was sufficiently scared and penitent. But people had died in this room, dozens of them. According to Cousin Jimmy, It was a New Moon tradition that when any member of the family was near death, he or she was promptly removed to the spare room to die amid surroundings of proper grandeur. Emily could see them dying in that terrible bed. She felt that she was going to scream again, but she fought the impulse down. A star must not be a coward. Oh, that owl. Suppose when she looked away from it and then looked back, she would find that it had silently hopped down from the wardrobe and was coming towards her. Emily dared not look at it for fear that was just what had happened. Didn't the bed curtain stir and waver? She felt beads of cold perspiration on her forehead. Then something did happen. A beam of sunlight struck through a small break in one of the slats of the blind and fell directly athwart the picture of Grandfather Murray hanging over the mantelpiece. It was a crayon enlargement copied from the old daguerreotype in the parlour below. In that gleam of light... His face seemed veritably to leap out of the gloom at Emily, with its grim frown strangely exaggerated. Emily's nerve gave way completely. In an ungovernable spasm of panic, she rushed madly across the room to the window, dashed the curtains aside, and caught up the slat behind. A blessed flood of sunshine burst in. Outside was a wholesome, friendly human world, and, of all wonders, there, leaning right against the windowsill, was a ladder. For a moment, Emily almost believed that a miracle had been worked for her escape. Cousin Jimmy had tripped that morning over the ladder lying lost among the burdocks under the balm of the gildleeds behind the dairy. It was very rotten, and he decided it was time to dispose of it. He had shouldered it up against the house so that he would be sure to see it on his return from Hayfield. In less time than it takes to write of it, Emily got the window up, climbed out of the sill, And backed down the ladder. She was too intent on escaping from that horrible room to be conscious of the shakiness of the rotten rungs. When she reached the ground, she bolted through the balm of gileads and over the fence into lofty John's bush. Nor did she stop running till she reached the path by the brook. Then she paused for breath, exultant. She was full of fearful joy, with an elfin delight running through it. Sweet was the wind of freedom that was blowing over the ferns. She had escaped from the spare room and its ghosts. She had got the better of mean old Aunt Elizabeth. I feel as if I were a little bird that had just got out of a cage, she told herself. And then she danced with joy of it all along her fairy path to the very end, where she found Isla Burnley huddled up on the top of a fence panel, her pale gold head making a spot of brilliance against the dark young firs that crowded around her. Emily had not seen her since that first day of school, and again she thought that she had never seen or pretended anybody just
1: like Isla. Well, Emily of New Moon, said Isla, where are you running to? I'm
0: running away, said Emily, frankly. I was bad, at least I was a little bad, and Aunt Elizabeth locked me in the spare room. I hadn't been bad enough for that. It wasn't fair so I got out of the window and down the ladder. You little cuss. I didn't think you were tough enough for that, said Isla. Emily gasped. It seemed very dreadful to be called a little cuss, but Isla had said it quite admiringly. I don't think it was tough, said Emily, too honest to take a compliment she didn't deserve. I was too scared to stay in that room. Well, where are you going to now? asked Isla. You'll have to go somewhere. You can't stay outdoors. There's a thunderstorm coming. So there was. Emily did not like thunderstorms, and her conscience smote her. Oh, she said, do you suppose God is bringing up that storm to punish me? because I've run away. No, said Isla, scornfully. If there is any God, he wouldn't
1: make such a fuss over nothing. Oh, Isla, don't you believe there is a God? I don't know.
0: Father said there isn't. But in that case, how did things happen? Some days I believe there's a God, and some days I don't. You'd better come home with me. There's nobody there. I was so dodgastedly lonesome, I took to the bush. Emily took it, and they ran together over Lofty John's pasture to the old Burnley house, which looked like a huge grey cat basking in the warm late sunshine that had not yet been swallowed up by the menacing thunderheads. Inside, It was full of furniture that must have been quite splendid once, but the disorder was dreadful and the dust lay thickly over everything. Nothing was in the right place, apparently, and Aunt Laura would certainly have fainted with horror if she had seen the kitchen. But it was a good place to play. You didn't have to be careful not to mess things up. Isla and Emily had a glorious game of hide-and-seek all over the house until the thunder got so heavy and the lightning so bright that Emily felt she must huddle on the sofa
1: and nurse her courage. Aren't you ever afraid of thunder? She asked Isla. No,
0: I ain't afraid of anything except the devil, said Isla. I thought you didn't believe in the devil either. Rhoda said you didn't. Oh, there's a devil all right, Father says. It's only God he doesn't believe in. And if there is a devil and no God to keep him in order, is it any wonder I'm scared of him? Look here, Emily Birdstar. I like you, heaps. I've always liked you. I knew you'd soon be good and sick of that little, white-livered, lying sneak of a Rhoda Stewart. I never tell lies. Father told me once he'd kill me if he ever caught me telling a lie. I want you for my chum. I'd go to school regular if I could sit with you. All right, said Emily off-handedly. No more sentimental Rhodian vows of eternal devotion for her. That phase was over. And you'll tell me things. Nobody ever tells me things. And let me tell you things. I haven't anybody to tell things to, said Isla. And you won't be ashamed of me because my clothes are always queer and because I don't believe in God. No, but if you knew Father's God, you'd believe in him. I wouldn't. Besides, there's only one God, if there's any
1: at all. I don't know, said Emily, perplexedly. No, it can't be like that. Ellen
0: Green's God isn't a bit like Father's, and neither is Aunt Elizabeth's. I don't think I'd like Aunt Elizabeth's but he is a dignified God at least, and Ellen's isn't, and I'm sure Aunt Laura's is another one still, nice and kind, but not wonderful like Father's. Well, never mind, I don't like talking about God, said Isla uncomfortably. I do, said Emily, I think God is a very interesting subject and I'm going to pray for you, Isla, that you can believe in Father's God. Don't you dast!" shouted Isla, who for some mysterious reason did not like the idea. I won't be prayed for. Don't you ever pray yourself, Isla? Oh, now and then, when I feel lonesome at night, or when I'm in a scrape, but I don't want anyone else to pray for me. If I catch you doing it, Emily Starr, I'll tear your eyes out, and don't you go sneaking and praying for me behind my back either. All right, I won't, said Emily sharply, mortified at the failure of her well-meant offer. I'll pray for every single soul I know, but I'll leave you out. For a moment, Isla looked as if she didn't like this either. Then she laughed and gave Emily a volcanic hug. Well, anyway, please like me. Nobody likes me, you know. Your father must like you, Isla. He doesn't, said Isla positively. Father doesn't care a hoot about me. I think there's times when he hates the sight of me. I wish he did like me, because he can be awful nice when he likes anyone. Do you know what I'm going to be when I grow up? I'm going to be an elocutionist. What's that? A woman who recites at concerts. I can
1: do it dandy. What are you going to be? A poetess. Golly, said Isla, apparently
0: overcome. I don't believe you can write poetry, she added. I can so too, cried Emily. I've written three pieces, Autumn and Lines to Rhoda, only I burned that, and an address to a buttercup. I composed it today, and
1: it is my, my masterpiece. Let's hear it, ordered Isla. Emily Bird Star, you didn't make that out of your own head. I did. Cross your heart. Cross my heart. Well, Isla drew a long breath. I
0: guess you are a poetess, all right? It was a very proud moment for Emily. One of the greatest moments of her life, in fact. Her world had conceded her standing, but now other things had to be thought of. The storm was over, and the sun had set. It was twilight. It would soon be dark. She must get home and back into the spare room before her absence was discovered. It was dreadful to think of going back, but she must do it lest a worse thing come upon her at Aunt Elizabeth's hands. Just now, under the inspiration of Isla's personality, she was full of Dutch courage. Besides, it would soon be her bedtime, and she would be let out. She trotted home through Lofty John's bush, that was full of the wandering, mysterious lamps of the fireflies dodged cautiously through the balm of Gileads, and stopped short in dismay. The ladder was gone. Emily went around to the kitchen door, feeling that she was going straight to her room. But for once, the way of the transgressor was made sinfully easy. Aunt Laura was alone in the kitchen. Emily, dear. "'Where on earth did you come from?' she exclaimed. "'I was just going up to let you out. "'Elizabeth said I might. "'She's gone to a prayer meeting.' "'Aunt Laura did not say that she had tiptoed several times to the spare room door "'and had been racked with anxiety over the silence behind it. "'Was the child unconscious from fright?' Would relentless Elizabeth allow that door to be opened? And here was Miss Emily, walking unconcernedly in and out of the twilight after all this agony. For a moment, even Aunt Laura was annoyed, but when she heard Emily's tale, her only feeling was thankfulness that Juliet's child had not broken her neck on that rotten ladder. Emily felt that she had got off better than she deserved. She knew Aunt Laura would keep the secret, and Aunt Laura let her give saucy Sal a whole cup of strippings and gave her a big plummy cookie and put her to bed with kisses. You oughtn't to be so good to me because I was bad today, Emily said between delicious mouthfuls. I suppose I disgraced the Murrays going barefoot. If I were you, I'd hide my boots every time I went out of the gate, said Aunt Laura. But I wouldn't forget to put them on before I came back. What Elizabeth doesn't know will never hurt her.
1: Emily reflected over this until she had finished her cookie. Then she said, That would be nice,
0: but I don't mean to do it any more. I guess I must obey Aunt Elizabeth because she's the head of the family. Where do you get such notions? said Aunt Laura. Out of my head? Aunt Laura, Isla Burnley and I are going to be chums. I like her. I've always felt I'd like her if I had a chance. I don't believe I can never love
1: any girl again, but I like her. Poor Isla, said Aunt Laura, sighing. Yes,
0: her father doesn't like her, isn't that dreadful, said Emily. Why doesn't he? He does, really. He only thinks he doesn't. But why does he think it? You are too young to understand, Emily." Emily hated to be told she was too young to understand. She felt that she could understand perfectly well, if only people would take the trouble to explain things to her, and not to be so mysterious. I wish I could pray for her, it wouldn't be fair though, when I know how she feels about it. But I've always asked God to bless all my friends, so she'll be in that, and maybe some good will come of it. Is cuss a proper word to say, Aunt Laura? No, no.
1: I'm sorry for that, said Emily, seriously, because it's very striking.